0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series hosted by the New Books Network in association with Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Minha T. Farm, Professor at the Graduate Probra- Program in Media Studies at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. We are in conversation about her book, Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Social Media's Influence on Fashion, Ethics, and Property, published by Duke University Press in 2022. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Pham, welcome.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
1: That's fabulous. I'm going to jump right in. Um, so it's, it's a very bo- fascinating book. I'm going to let you lead on that. Could you tell us a little bit about the book, uh, how the project came about, and what specifically about fashion ethics intrigued you in conversation with social media?
2: Oh, great. Um, how did the project come about? as so many of my projects do, it's it's quite organic. Um, I am on social media a lot, probably too much. Um, And so I'm really interested because I'm a scholar of um, culture, you know, cultural studies, um, race and gender. I'm always kind of on the lookout for, for those kinds of things. Right. Um, But because I'm on the internet so much, um, I started to, realize, I started to see um, that, that there was this, this kind of phenomenon that was happening, right, that I later coined as crowdsourced intellectual property regulation. But basically what that means is that I started to see social media users and fashion brands and fashion designers um, encouraging, if not recruiting, social media users to call out um, knockoff artists, fashion knockoff artists, um, or knockoff brands, right? So and and oftentimes you started to see trends where only certain kinds of brands and certain kinds of um, knockoffs were being called out. right? And so I became very interested in the way that um, fashion, the fashion industry, fashion brands have used digital media, have used the internet in particular, um, to reorganize, Um, the supply chain, to reorganize global fashion markets, to reorganize um, global trade and global capitalism, right? Um, This this is what I was doing in my first book. My first book is on um, um, Asian super bloggers. I'm looking at the rise of Asian super bloggers and thinking about how this particular group of bloggers, what this particular group of very successful personal style bloggers can tell us about the ways that race and gender and class um, are, um, are, are, are integral to how um, fa- the fashion industry kind of reproduces itself, right? Like how does it rely on certain kinds of racialized and gendered labor um, now that we're in this kind of fashion internet economy? So, so the idea, the questions of labor and fashion ca- global fashion capitalism and the internet are really kind of the, the intersection where I'm working. Um, in this book, um, you know, I expand it to consider how other kinds of consumers, not consumers that think of themselves as bloggers, but just regular ordinary consumers are, are um, kind of being called upon and think of themselves as being called upon to act, to um, help brands go after uh, knockoffs, right? Um, and so, again, this becomes this kind of consumer labor, becomes a new um, sector, a new node in the supply chain, a new sector um, of workers that the fashion industry can um, extract labor from, right? And, of course, all of this is done voluntarily. It's it's unwaged labor. It's very casualized labor. Um, and so in some ways this is a very new phenomenon, but if we look at the kind of history of fashion capitalism, right? The kind of low wage worker or the no wage worker, the casualization of labor, et cetera, we're not seeing anything new. We're just seeing that digital media has allowed global capital and global fashion in particular to kind of expand the scope of its ability to to extract um, labor. Now, what's, what's, in, what's new about it is that it's extracting this labor under the cover of things like um, you know, ethical fashion, right? A, a call for ethical fashion and, and, and that consumers um, feel like they have a responsibility to um, make this industry, to help this industry out, right? This trillion dollar industry, right? Um, and that's really fascinating to me. So um, I'm, I'm really interested in how, you know, the idea of work is being reorganized in the internet age, um, the, how the idea specifically of fashion work is reimagined um, in, you know, in ways that that actually don't resolve any kinds of inequalities, but actually harden those inequalities.
1: Mm-hmm. No, the, the ideas about work are very it's it's very uh, it's very obvious in your text it's it's intentionally there this idea of of uncompensated yet voluntary labor which consumers but not really consumers because they're also you know producing their own capital alongside these brands and and so it's a it's a complicated view of all of these and I really appreciated the way that you'd structured it and I'd come to some of those questions around, how you view social media behavior. But before we get into that, I really want to get into the first example you share in your text, which is looking at um, the controversy around the originality of a particular design that Forever 21 had put out. And um, like you said in your opening remarks around crowdsourced intellectual property regulation, could you speak to that
2: a little bit?
1: in terms of how, because that example really sets the tone for the rest of the text. It's complicated and really sets the tone.
2: Yeah, crowdsourced IP regulation um, is, so I can talk about that, but I can say just kind of in broader terms, right, that that becomes an example for me of liberal forms of digital activism that maybe um, are reproducing the kinds of harm that they intend to um, challenge, right? Um, and so this is just one example, crowdsource IP regulation. Crowdsource IP regulation, um, this idea that social media users, ordinary consumers, are have a responsibility, right? To make the fashion market more ethical. And it, and it's also, it's also um, rooted in a kind of growing um, and already very widespread concern that consumers have and a desire that they have for ethical fashion right so it's coming it's it's very well intentioned um, but what's happening is is that as consumers um, are using social media platforms to call out different you know brands um, or to help out brands that are are um, complaining of being copied what I saw is that the ways in which, um, social media users understood the difference between um, real fashion and fake fashion, Um, property and impropriety, creativity and copying, Um, their kind of frameworks for understanding, right, what a counterfeit or a fake fashion product is, was really interesting to me. And it was interesting because it echoes so much of, you know, very traditional understandings of property. Right. Um, And it doesn't and it didn't um, it doesn't challenge the kinds of racial politics and the colonial histories of property. Right. And so I I, you know, what's really interesting is that fashion brands call upon consumers oftentimes and, and, and oftentimes consumers take it upon themselves. But when fashion brands call upon them, they what they say is and this is the first um, example that you're, you're talking about, the first case study that I look at, what they say is that lawyers can't really help us here. First of all, the law, IP law in the United States, right, doesn't cover much of fashion design. It covers like trademarks, et cetera, but it doesn't cover the actual physical design of the product. So the law doesn't help us. The law is inadequate, right? And so, so brands are calling on consumers to kind of be a stopgap, for what they see as an inadequacy of the law, right? Um, the other thing that they say is that, you know, smaller designers say, well, like the, the first case study, Granted Clothing, which is a, um, a knitwear brand based in Vancouver, Canada. What they're saying is like, we, we're a small brand, we can't afford, we can't afford to, um, I'm sorry, we can't afford to uh, hire lawyers, right? And a bigger brand like Forever 21, um, is, is really taking advantage of us because there's this giant international corporation. Um, when, when you look at the kind of discourse around, cre- you know, the, the ways that consumers are defining and brands are defining creativity versus copying, what you see again is, you know, this. there are many assumptions being made about who a designer is, what originality looks like, Um, The first case study that I look at that opens the book um, shows that, yes, Forever 21 copied Granted Clothing Sweater, right? Um, And and everybody and social media users were up in arms about it. There was a lot of viral outrage about it. Um, But the fact that Granted Clothing, this Vancouver small knitwear brand, was actually copying an indigenous design, didn't seem to matter to anybody, even when it was pointed out, right? And so, in the one on the one hand, this indigenous design um, gets imagined as um, a public resource, public heritage, right? Cultural heritage, because the brand is in, because Granted Clothing is in Vancouver. It was, you know, they saw it as, and they articulated it on their website. It's no longer there anymore, but they they actually mentioned it, where they would say. Um, we're proud of this heritage, right? This Canadian heritage. And this is an homage, right? Um, And so even the ways that, you know, the language of homage, cultural appreciation, et cetera, um, are ways to kind of get around, you know, the kinds of clear racial and colonial biases in property logics. Um, And so, you know, and I want to be clear that the book is not that interested in arguing for, um, you know, which which design is, designer is right or wrong. Um, what I'm really interested in is the kind of logics that allow certain kinds of um, brands to be seen or designs to be seen as fake fashion and for certain kinds of designs to be seen as original work, even when they're clearly copied, right? Um, and so in the book, I talk a lot about how um, what, what we're seeing is not a kind of argument between original, originality and copying, but actually the debate really is between who is allowed to copy, right, and still be seen as an original designer and who is not allowed to copy, right? And so that there's a kind of right to copy um, um, that, that consumers, that social media users are actually um, ratifying in some way, right? Kind of in this kind of popular informal way, ratifying a right to copy for some designers, some creatives and 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 taking it away from others.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that is a, thank you so much for going into that. And that's fabulous. And that sort of brings me to this uh, point about, and then you sort of hinted at it and briefly touched upon in the uh, previous remarks around property, right? So. What is connected closely to ownership of property and how property gets socially constructed, in fact, is also related to who gets to perform the particularly creative labor, because that's the new turn in labor studies is looking at creative labor. But you're complicating this by asking, well, wait a minute, who's actually allowed to perform what is technically creative labor? Because everything's creative, right? You take a route to school and you can't figure out, uh, you know, which bus it is. So you creatively improvise and you're like, oh, I'm just going to hitchhike or something like that, right? That's a poor example. But that's everybody's doing that creative work but at what point does that become uh, monetized and how that becomes implicated into um, these global structures is something that you're looking at. Um, Could we, we go into that a little bit about how this property becomes attached to the bodies of separate stakeholders, like the very real questions of gender and race that are evoked, which you go into it with the chapter on the history where you look at Foga and all of these um Different things, but, but it's a bit complicated. There are different stakeholders. People are being incited, like you said. Oh, speak up and you know tell us what is going on. So, in, in the contemporary context, how do you look at property, and social? Like, there's a lot of that stuff. So, let's let's come back to the social construction of property and relationship to creative labor. So, that's
2: something. I mean, the history of property in the United States. Um, in the United States context, the history of property is is you know, rooted in um, Native genocide, right? Is rooted in, you know, the colonialism of of the Americas, um, dispossession, Native dispossession, et cetera, right? We can't get away from that. It's rooted, the the history of property is also rooted in the history of slavery, right? Um, In the United States, who is allowed to be considered property and who can never be considered property, right? Um, so, so there's that, and that's, that's a much longer history. I, I talk about it, you know, um, I do spend some time on those, that history in the book, but it's, it's you know, even that is, is so, is so um, cursory, right? Um, but one of the, the kind of lines of this, this history that I do track is the racialization of property and the racialization of, in, in particular, um, thieves, right? So if you have property, then you, all, you have to, if there's such a thing as property, there has to be such a thing as a thief, right? Um, if, there's, if there's property rights, there has to be someone who is violating those rights, right, by being the thief, right? And so I look specifically today we, when we think of um, fashion knockoffs in particular, Right, knockoff handbags, etc., n- knockoff fashion. Um, we often think of Asians, right? Um, whether it's you know Canal Street in in Chinatown in the Uni- uh, in New York um, in Manhattan, or it's um, you know made in China products, made in Bangladesh, made in Vietnam products, right? We think of as you know um, probably made under unethical conditions, whether that's, you know, bad labor conditions within that kind of workplace or whether it's made, um, um, you know, as a knockoff, right. Whether it was copied. Um, and so one of the chapters traces the history of this Asian fashion copycat, right. And it traces to this idea that, you know, the idea that Asians are imagined, um, Particularly in the U.S., but this is this is you know widespread too. Um, the idea that Asians are often imagined as not having any capacity for creativity. You know, Asians um, take instructions well. Asians work hard. Asians are good at doing repetitive labor, right? But Asians are not creative. They're not problem solvers. They're not. They don't take initiative. They're not self expressive. They have no soul, right? Um, so all of those kind of um, cultural stereotypes help shape this idea, help shape now um, the knockoff economy, right? The, the idea that we think of as a knockoff economy. that we it couldn't possibly be that you know these these Asians, we can't imagine them as creatives because historically, Asians have been racialized as being without the capacity for creativity. Um, And, you know, and and there's a there's a remark I make in the book where um, at the very same time that we're looking at, you know, China, Vietnam, um, India and different places in Asia as kind of epicenters for knockoff fashion. Right. At this very moment when we're looking at, you know, we're we're racializing Asia as a pirate, you know, as pirate countries. uh, the the MoMA had that exhibit right. In the MoMA had the exhibit where um, they looked at China's influence. This is the Looking Glass exhibit, right? They they look at China's influence on Western fashion, and and something that I say in the book is that many of the designs that we see at this this museum exhibit um, could be considered knockoffs. They 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 look like the original, right? Um, but nobody is using the term knockoff. Nobody is talking about counterfeit. Nobody is questioning whether or not Europeans and white American designers um, have the capacity for creativity, right? No one is talking about the US or France or Italy being pirate nations, right? And so this is a great example of how these ideas about you know fake fashion or real fashion or original fashion and, and counterfeit fashion are actually not um objective terms right there's no objective quality and and when 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 we um, when brands when the fashion industry or when and some fashion IP lawyers when they talk about expanding um, intellectual property protections to include fashion there's always a kind of list a laundry list of okay these are the criteria right that we would use to determine whether something is a knockoff or not. Which suggests that there that fake that there's like objective qualities that make a fashion design fake or real or original or or um, not a counterfeit. Um, In fact, there's not right. These are these are kind of racial and um, cultural biases that we bring to designs um, that that reinforce you know racial hierarchies, but also um, geoeconomic hierarchies between different regions, the global north, the global south, etc.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch.
1: right no that thank you for that um the other question and i'm looking at the list of questions that i have and I, and it may be overkill at this point but and, and 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 the following questions will look at social media in specific because that's such a huge site through which you operate um one of the things that you say i think earlier on is 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 you don't call what is happening on social media it's a larger phenomenon around branding you 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 stop yourself from from calling it uh, or you say the term social media shaming and, and outbursts and stuff like that and you're not interested in calling it that right and and i i assume that has to relate i, I in my mind it relates to the idea of uncompensated voluntarily performed labor that you were talking about and it's pertinent to get into platform capitalism and all sorts of people are making money off of this <laughs> this this outrage or shaming so I think what you do is through you you really highlight look the platform is not absent from from all of it. it's not a neutral space. So, yeah, I just wanted to get into some of that of why we look at these discourses and, and what is the danger of just calling them discourses that are happening.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Make- uh, a lot of articles um, that have focused on this call it social media shaming or cancel culture. Right. It's part of that kind of um, idea or that it, it gets um, kind of folded into that discourse. Right. Um, I I think that it's part of it. I do. I think that it's part of it, but I think that social media outrage or social media shaming, um, is an inadequate term precisely for the reasons that you mentioned, right? First of all, it suggests it it doesn't, it doesn't highlight enough. It doesn't emphasize enough that these are value producing activities, right? They're value producing, which is to say they're it's work, right? It's, Uncompensated work—it's unremunerated work, but it is work because it produces value, and it produces all kinds of value. It produces commercial value, but it also produces consumer values, right around taste and what even is ethical fashion, right? So that—that's one reason that I think that the term social media outrage is inadequate. The other reason I think it's inadequate, and again, you've—you've you've already mentioned this—is that it—it it doesn't take seriously enough the social media, right? It doesn't take seriously enough the way that social media tools and um, sites aren't just, um, they're, they're not just, they're not just the thing that's being used to call out knockoff brands, right? It's not just the thing that's being used, but actually that, that social media becomes the, the thing that's being struggled over. Right? And so what you have a lot is, is that right now the, the concern is that um, fashion knockoffs are you know, just exploding everywhere precisely because the wrong people ha- have access to social media. That is to say, you know, Chinese factories, for example, have too much access to social media. They can look at a, um, a video of a, of a um, runway show right, and zoom in 300 500% and they can, um, um, you know, copy a design without ever, ha- you know, without ever having it in their possession, right? And so that it isn't just that these, these um, you know, Asian fashion copycats are kind of culturally um, inclined, right, to copy because they don't have the, you know, creative, the creative capacity. But the other problem is, is that these Asian copycats have a technical skill, right? They have this this kind of technical skill without the the ethical um, compass, right, to copy, right? So there's a a lack, there's um, a kind of undeveloped, these aren't just undeveloped countries or developing countries, but there's a kind of underdeveloped sense of ethics, morality, an underdeveloped sense of, um, underdeveloped appreciation for property, individual property, um, and, and so all these, all these kinds of stereotypes kind of come together to, to create the kind of discourse that we're seeing now about, um, about, about knockoff fashion, but it's also so normalized that ordinary social media users who have no training um, and have no background in thinking about the politics of property or the history of property, um, all of this makes sense to them. Right. Because these cultural stereotypes are so widespread and so pervasive that that um, the idea that, oh, probably, you know, something made in Asia, especially if it's expensive, is going to be a knockoff. Probably that makes sense. Right. It fits it. It fits all kinds of stereotypes that are deeply held and deeply rooted um, in in many cultures, but particularly in the United States.
1: No, that's totally right, and all of this while uh, the U.S. especially has the worst track record for workers' right protections, and we have you see unions forming everywhere. And this is a point you bring up even in your even the first, first example. It was the garment was in fact produced <laughs> was probably produced in the U.S. where the U, the Forever Twenty One uh, factory is. Which which is so interesting. So this burden of unethical consumption as well as production being associated with largely Asian bodies and appropriated from
2: uh... absolutely the racialization of piracy, right, and particularly the Asianization of piracy um, is something that is not is not just confined to fashion, and certainly not just confined to this moment. But that this moment, um, but that social media. And digital media is is creating kind of new, is expanding that that discourse for sure. Is expanding these stereotypes, but is also um, allowing these stereotypes to circulate and you know faster and wider than they had in the past. Um, but it's you know it's really fascinating to me this this idea that there was a line, um, there was a quote that someone said. I think it was in the first case study where the designer said, you know these these. Forever Twenty One scouring the internet, right? And like, what does it mean to scour the internet? Obviously, what he means is that they're misusing the internet in some way, right? That that they're um, that they're misusing. They're not just misusing the fashion, the design. They're misusing the internet. And so again, you see these kinds of um, intersections of you know Asians, the stereotype with Asians with high skill, technical skill, but no sense of ethics and certainly no creativity kind of come together in this way that that um, becomes part of the common sense about knockoff fashion, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: no, that's that's a very important point. And I think you've highlighted that with, with a lot of importance. And the other thing that I wanna get into from this is of course you highlight uh, this this idea of looking and being able to zoom in, I found it so fascinating. And being able to look oh look, people have access to social media. They're able to like look at these three sixty whatever runway shows where you can you know with, with museums, you have access to all sorts of things. But what is also happening, and you look at some of the critique that social media as a platform is able to enable. That's a weird thing to say, but it's, it's it provides also that space for. Uh, not just looking at, but looking back, which I found so interesting. And you highlighted in, you know, the Diet Prada, but also the Thai rainbow bag is is precisely what that is. And of course it's with caveats because it's not, you know, it's also buying into some of those logics, but also critiquing it. But it's a a very complicated looking back, which I found so interesting And, and just wanted you to sort of go into some of the motivation behind, you know, not not just that social media is all bad in terms of, you know, for the brands to manipulate, but there's something quite feral about the way in which uh, instant messaging and instant commenting and just virality of certain things goes up. It's it's, it's a precarious space for even the brands to handle mm-hmm. and what that allows for and what that doesn't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the case study you're talking about, um, some Thai social media users, social media users in Thailand, um, are calling out Balenciaga for, for a tote bag that they see on the runway, um, a tote bag that looks a lot like kind of, you know, tote bags that can be found in Thailand. Um, this is a great example. Social media is, is not just a tool, right? It's the very site of struggle over these ideas, Right. Of of you know creativity versus copying, um, and so this is an example of that. And and you know as you point out, um, the the Thai consumers are absolutely buying into certain ideas about um, intellectual property and and the importance of of you know claiming anything as property, claiming any design as property. Um, they do it from a very different vantage point. Than say Western consumers than say um, Western brands certainly right but but these again these ideas are are global at this point the ideas that that um, you know we can we can um, that the kind of pro- the logics of intellectual property Western intellectual property logics have become very global and we see these Thai consumers kind of embracing some of it um, and so there's you know these kinds of intellectual, crowdsourced intellectual property regulation from below, as I call it, right, from the global south or from consumers that are in the periphery of um, global fashion, who live in the periphery of global fashion, um, don't guarantee any kind of economic or social justice, right? Um, But what they do do, what these kinds of moments, these incidents do do, is that they show us that Western, um, the Western property regime, right? Western intellectual property logics are in fact not fixed, are not secure, can be destabilized, um, right? And so it shows that there's there's cracks in the wall, right? And and that's really important. Um, It also, for a moment, the Thai um, consumers, the Thai social media users, for a moment, and in very limited ways, End up reversing the kind of relationship between the the um, creative West and the copycat, you know, East, right? And so they do reverse that; they do upend that in limited ways. Um, what I also love about this story is that um, the Balenciaga bag actually becomes devalued, right? Because the Thai consumers somehow have managed to turn the their memes, the memes that they're creating to call it Balenciaga, these are going viral now, right? They've they've spread beyond Thailand. They're going viral. And so Balenciaga is now dealing with a bad PR problem. But as it's dealing with a bad PR problem, the price, the the actual price of the Thai bag increases, right? I think like you know, threefold, which is just amazing. And and so the tie bag goes from, I don't remember, like a dollar to three U.S. dollars, right? The equivalent of like a dollar to three U.S. dollars or something like that. Um, but the fact that that there was this kind of increase shows again, it reminds again that the work that these social media watchdogs are doing is in fact work, it's value producing work. Um, but that also that, that, in very limited ways that the global economy that consumers are influencing um global markets and global economies and the flow of all kinds of capital right for very limit in limited ways they're reversing that flow from um the you know from the west now back to the to the to the east and that's fascinating to me
1: yeah no that was absolutely such a fascinating example and what uh and this is gonna be slightly tangential, but what that made me think of is this scene from Devil Wears Prada. And and Miranda Priestley, which is uh, uh Meryl Streep's character, is lecturing her assistant and and is telling her, Oh, you are laughing at this belt, and she lists us this this entire like trail through which fashion percolates down, from high-end runway shows to department stores to knockoffs to the streets of wherever she picked it up from. And then she lists out that, oh, actually, you're wearing whatever was picked out for you by me and people like me. But what the Thai Rainbow Pack does is like, well, it's not as simple. Actually, people may have been already living in those spaces. And what these editors and magazines and, and brands do is, is also flip stuff, right? So it's not as top down as one might think. It's actually a little more complicated. And I love that story so much. And it, it really just hits the nail on the head. And what you said about like devalue work—that devalues—was also something I hadn't thought of that until you said it right now. But the work is just not does not just produce value. It also produces devalue or devalue something as well. Like that's the potential that work has to, which is quite fascinating to think about. Like work that is being done that actually ruptures capitalist uh, uh, flows of productivity.
2: Yes, yes. But also, again, because this value producing work is not remunerated, um, the work itself is already devalued, right? The very work that consumers are doing um, you know, the work that they're doing for free for, again, like a $3 trillion global industry, right? The, w- the ways in which consumers have come to feel protective over a $3 trillion industry is um, fascinating, but also a little bit alarming, right? Um, so the work that is being done is devalued. But this, again, this is not new to social media, right? Right. Um, that fashion, the global fashion industry has always relied on and continues to rely on um, and profit from the, devalu- you know, the devaluation of certain kinds of labor, right? Particularly, for example, whether it's garment workers, models, um, you know, and so on, right? It's kind of rank and file fashion worker, right? It's always relied on that. And, and again, it, you know, it, it profits from the precarity of so much fashion work, right? Which now we can include consumer labor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: No, that's, that's absolutely uh, correct. And, and there was, I mean, I'm going to do like a short thing because I, I don't want to keep you over time. And I have a couple of questions, just, just one short uh, uh, sort of question around method and, and, which I thought was really interesting. The fact that all of these examples are seemingly organically coming at you. Like you said, you use you, you social media and the same with me. Honestly, I picked out my research site based on how much I was using social media and how much like makeup artists were coming at me. <laughs> it felt like almost, it, so it felt like they picked me instead of me picking. So how much of your own personal, uh, yeah, this, this, Something that you were already doing that you can, you know, draw a project out of. And also, yeah, this, this sort of blurring of, of personal um, curiosity at, or, or whatever consumption it may be called. And professional, which I find so fascinating.
2: I mean, I think that anyone who does research on any aspect of social media, right? And, and again, social media is just this very small term for a huge field, right? And, it, you know, um, a huge, diverse, um, heterogeneous field, right? But anyone who does research on social media, I think in some ways is already what we might call a participant observer, right? So already there's, there, that's happening. Um, my training is in structural analysis. My training is in, you know, cultural studies, like I said. Um, my training is in um, cultural economy, Right. And so that's that's kind of where my training comes from. But just in doing my research, um, I have become a participant observer. I have become, um, you know, the first book grew out of um, my experience as a blogger. I was never a style blogger. I was never a fashion blogger. But I had a, um, a research blog that I was um, working, with, um, working on with um, a colleague and friend, Mimi Nguyen. Um, but as we were doing this, as we were producing the content for this blog, I started become, becoming very interested in my own practices as an as a academic blogger, but also um, looking at how other Asian women and other um, Asian men and women would um, use their own personal blogs, right, to promote brands, et cetera, to promote their own style, identity, et cetera. And so a lot of it is me looking at, like, how am I interacting with social media? How am I interacting with, you know, whether it's the blogging platforms or how I'm even responding to, for example, um, you know, Diet Prada's posts, right, or how I'm responding to the um, the, the latest kind of – Um, fashion trial by social media, how how I'm responding to it and also what I'm seeing, right? So there is, in some ways, there's also a lot of kind of discourse analysis. There's a lot of um, um, representational analysis too, I think, right? Um, The ways that in which certain um, people are representing themselves as ethical consumers, shaming other consumers who might have bought, you know, Forever Twenty One, for example, um, or the, even what you know, what people call the performativity, right, of social media, where like the the promise, the promise to boycott fast fashion and the promise to boycott certain brands that were to only buy other you know luxury brands, um, ethical fashion, and so kind of like the the subtextual narrative in my book is that a lot of the popular understandings of what ethical fashion is or how to go about making fashion more ethical, I think is based on some real myths about um, what, for example, intellectual property is, right? Intellectual property is concerned with economics. It's not concerned, and it's certainly not driven by ethical considerations for um, unequal power, right? That is not what intellectual property does or is interested in doing. And yet we call on, you know, in these fashion trials by social media, we call on intellectual property and we assume that intellectual property, if not the law, at least its logics, are going to somehow make the market more ethical, right? And so then even with the idea of ethics, right, the idea of what is ethical becomes a very U.S. centered, but also very Western kind of concept that gets exported um, and, and circulates through ethical fashion movements, whether it's about, you know, knockoff fashion or whether it's about sustainability, et cetera, right? These concepts, sustainability, ethical fashion, are very much Western-based, um, 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 but also, you know, very U.S. and Eurocentric in a lot of ways. And I don't, you know, and it's, it's, it's frustrating to me, to be honest, that um, so much of sustainable fashion, ethical fashion movements um, are reproducing a lot of kind of Western notions of what what life, what creativity, what um, health, what safety means Mm-hmm, mm-hmm no uh,
1: yeah I would strongly recommend to all of the listeners to go out and get the book because this is something so pertinent that we're dealing with today right now and also something that we have been somehow dealing with it's current as well as very much rooted in history it's the history you touch on in your text I'm very curious to know what your next project is as I'm sure at the end of the interview uh, all of the other listeners are so could you tell us what you're working on now and what we can oh, expect? Great.
2: Um, you know, that's, that's, as you know, because you're working on your dissertation, that's both a great question and a terrible question. Um, I have a lot of ideas that I'm working on. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about um, the supply chain. I'm thinking very closely about the supply chain and how um, the pandemic um, multiple pandemics have impacted the supply chain. So I've written some articles on this. Whether or not it becomes a book is something that I'm thinking about. Um, I'm also really interested in the kind of aestheticization of politics around sustainable fashion and ethical fashion. And, and so something about like the ways in which um, um, influencers, right, can produce an identity, um, and produce a platform in which they become the leading voices of sustainable fashion, the sustainable movement, et cetera. Um, and I'm you know I'm kind of wondering like what's behind the screen, right? Like th- the content looks good, but what's behind there? And so thinking about the kind of est- aestheticization of politics, I'm also really interested in um, the ways in which recognized labor unions, particularly in Southeast Asia and South Asia, recognize labor un- garment labor unions, um, maybe collaborate um, with state powers, right? And so that we often, we think of, un- you know, we, we're pro-union, we want garment workers to unionize, we want to um, support garment workers to unionize, but unions themselves are political. They're not neutral, right? Um, they're political, th- their formation is political, and... The unions that the unions and the union representatives, oftentimes that are allowed to have a voice and a platform, are oftentimes um, the ones that are willing to work with the factory manager, are willing to work with the client, which is to say the the fashion the Western fashion brand, willing to work with the state, right? And so, in some ways, there's kind of a the ways in which you know, diversity, equity, inclusion programs in the United States have become defanged right? in a lot of ways because they've become kind of um, window dressing. I'm wondering about how formal unions and the kind of internationally recognized unions in Southeast Asia, um, in the Southeast Asian garment industries um, are possibly harming garment workers who are um, who, who, like the, the most vulnerable garment workers, right? So I'm thinking about the garment workers that are um, not even on the, the payroll, right? Who are home workers, who are, um, what, you know, et cetera. So, so there's, there's a lot of ideas um, that I'm, I'm interested in, but what will happen with any of these ideas is anybody's guess at this point.
1: No, all of those sound fascinating. I'll be looking forward to whatever next, whether it's an article or any kind of uh, 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 production of knowledge that comes out. I'll be looking out for that. And I'm sure others uh, will, too. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Farm, for joining us and for all of these insights. It was truly fascinating. And I genuinely mean that. Uh, uh, to speak with you. Once again, I am Lakshata Malik. This discussion of Why We Can't Have Nice Things, published by Duke University Press in 2022, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab in the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening, and go out and get that book.